0: Please remain standing for the reading of the scriptures. I will be in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 23. That's a little different than what the bulletin says, but Romans 9, 14 through 23. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand, for glory, go ahead and be seated i 'm going to pray in just a moment. I want to say up front that the passage we 're examining this morning is not an easy one, <laughs> but it is it is a critically important one. Paul says in this passage things that we uh, are going to find a little hard to accept. Uh, but we'll we'll see that paul makes the uncompromising case that the eternal destinies of men are determined entirely by god and even though paul will go on later in this epistle just as he did in earlier chapters to talk about the necessity for men to place their faith in jesus christ in order to be saved paul will not explain to us how to reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. He's going to raise the very questions that he knows will arise in our own minds, but his responses will not line up perfectly with our logic. Instead, the answers that Paul presents to us will call us to a response of humility. A response... That we must have as creatures who will never fully comprehend our Creator. And at the same time, who will never have the liberty to impose upon Him our conceptions about how He should act. And it is that responsive humility that we who belong to Christ will find to give us great joy. As vessels of His boundless mercy and grace vessels that he has prepared beforehand for glory. Dear Father, this passage is indeed uh, difficult for us to understand, but it tells us things about you that we very much need to know, things that make our destiny as your children even more certain and that give us unshakable confidence that your grace toward us can never be undone. Humble us this morning to gratefully accept what you declare here about yourself and about us, so that we'll be vessels ready for your use until the day that we enter into our inheritance as fellow heirs with Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Last week, we uh, considered an Old Testament example in which God responded to a complaint that's fairly similar to the one that Paul anticipates as he begins this next section of Romans 9. In the book of Job, we saw that God gave Satan permission to severely test Job, a man whom God himself declared to be blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. With God's authorization, Satan killed Job's family. He took him from wealth to poverty and he afflicted him with boils from head to toe. As Job struggled to understand why God had dealt with him as he had, he came for a time to question the justness and the rightness of the things that God had done to him and to his family. But God never told Job why he acted as he did. Instead, God's response to Job focused on his own character, on the infinite distinction between God's perfect understanding and Job's very limited understanding. In the passage we're looking at today, Paul will very decisively argue along those same lines. Here's where we're going. In verse 14, Paul presents a summary question that's responding to what he has just said about Jacob and Esau. And that question is, there is no injustice with God, is there? And then in verses 15 to 18, he will demonstrate that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And then in verses 19 to 23, he presents the analogy of a potter and the vessels that the potter makes. And he tells us that the potter's purpose determines the vessel's use. He begins in verse 14 with the question, What shall we say then? Now we've seen that question numerous times already. uh, Either that or the abbreviated form, what then, uh, in this epistle. Paul uses that question to get our attention because it means he's about to make a critical point. And it also the, the use of that question also points us back to what came before. And, and in verse 14, he's saying, what shall we say then in response to what he's just said about Jacob and Esau? That is, about God's sovereign choice to love Jacob and to hate Esau even while the two boys were still in their mother's womb. He says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And then he immediately responds, as he has so many times before, to the questions he poses. He says, may it never be. That's the strongest negative available in the Greek. Perish the thought. Any allegation of injustice that men may level against God will not stand, because there is no injustice with God. As soon as we see Paul's forcefully negative response there, we think, oh, good, good. I'm so relieved. He's about to tell us something that will explain why God loved Jacob and blessed him and why God hated Esau and cursed, ended up cursing him. He's, he's going to tell us what the difference was between these two men so that all this will make good sense to us. But that isn't even remotely what Paul does. He does not make any effort to cater to our preconceptions about what should have governed God's actions toward Jacob and Esau. Instead, he goes back to Exodus to fortify what he just declared about the exclusive role of God's sovereign choice in determining each man's destiny. He quotes a passage that comes from Exodus 33, and this Interaction between God and Moses happened right after the golden calf incident. After Israel committed this grievous act of idolatry, idolatry, Moses pleaded with God asking him to spare the entire nation of Israel from his fierce judgment. The judgment that Moses admitted that Israel deserved because of their idolatry. But God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion paul exactly quotes exodus 33:19 here in romans 9:15 and then paul draws a conclusion from that declaration from god he says so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on god who has mercy it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs now, the idea of running is a, a common idea in Paul's epistles. He uses running as an analogy for the diligent pursuit of the things that God values. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And a couple of verses after that, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others I myself might be disqualified. When Paul talks about running, he's talking about perseverance in the furtherance of God's agenda. But in Romans 9, 16, he says, that how well a man runs has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not he becomes the object of God's mercy. When he says it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, what he's saying is neither your choice nor your performance will ensure that you receive God's mercy. As for the performance part, Paul, of course, already made that very clear. (laughs) In chapter 3, he was forceful about the fact that our performance has earned us all a business class ticket to hell. Because there is no one righteous, not even one. There is none who even seeks after God. Back in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, he said, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now, many believers respond to that by saying, thank God my salvation is not based on my performance. Thank God it's based on my choice to put my faith in Jesus Christ. But that is also not what Paul is saying. Because he says, not only does it not depend on the man who runs, it does not depend on the man who wills. But it depends only on God. See, it's not about us choosing God, it's about God choosing us. The one and only thing that determines that a man is the recipient of God's mercy in this passage is God who has mercy. And to drive home his point about the irrelevance of the will of man... Paul goes back even further in Exodus, all the way back to chapter 4, and he points us to something that God, or excuse me, chapter 9, he points us to something that God said to Pharaoh. He says, the, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That's where Paul takes it. Now, if you're familiar with the narrative in Exodus about the ten plagues with which God afflicted the Egyptians, you know that Pharaoh repeatedly failed to respond with humility before God. In the early stages of the plagues, you might think that Pharaoh responded reasonably, especially when his own magicians were able to duplicate in some fashion some of the the miraculous plagues that were coming forth uh, every time Moses wielded that nasty staff of his. But as the plagues progressed, even the magicians ended up covered with boils from head to toe. It became more and more evident that the hardness of Pharaoh's heart violated reason. Even after the Passover plague, when the firstborn Sons of Egypt all lay dead, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He dropped his guard long enough to let the Israelites leave Egypt, but then he turned around and sent his horses and chariots and soldiers after the Israelites. And that was the last he saw of his horses and chariots and soldiers and of the Israelites. There were several points in the Exodus narrative that that seemed to indicate that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and there are many preachers and teachers of the Bible who believe that when God hardens uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, when it says that God did it, that all God was really doing was just adding fuel to the fire that was already burning in Pharaoh's heart. In other words, that Pharaoh was really the one who determined his own choices and actions, and God simply amplified those choices. But the very first reference to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus occurs before Moses ever even spoke to Pharaoh. And God says in that passage, Exodus 4, to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then he says, thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God knew in advance that Pharaoh was going to stubbornly refuse to get the point of the ten plagues. And you know how God knew? Because God determined That Pharaoh would stubbornly refuse the point of the ten plagues. God declared before the first plague that in the tenth plague he would kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And he did not present, God did not present his actions as reactions in any sense. He didn't say, if only Pharaoh turns out to humble himself and respond rightly, then I won't have to harshly afflict the Egyptians. Instead, God declares in advance, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Those words mean what they say. If we try to water them down, we deny that which God has clearly and forcefully declared to be true. Later in Exodus 9, Moses God says to Pharaoh through Moses, but indeed for this cause I have allowed you to remain. And I think a more literal translation is, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Paul cites that Statement by God also in Romans 9, verse 17, he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then Paul says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's not saying that God was trying to slap sense into Pharaoh to get him to respond rationally. by escalating the plagues until Pharaoh got on board with God's agenda. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying that Pharaoh exactly fulfilled God's agenda through his persistent stubbornness. The very reason that Pharaoh came into power in Egypt in the first place was so that the day would come when God would harden his heart. Because if Pharaoh's heart had not been hardened, then the world would not have beheld the fierce power of God over the mightiest king and the mightiest kingdom and over all the so-called gods of Egypt. In Exodus 12, just before the Passover plague, God says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. In verse 18... Having made the case based on God's dealings with Pharaoh, Paul says, so then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, uh, on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Nothing in the course of events that we find in Exodus depended on Pharaoh's choice. And that includes even Pharaoh's response to God. It was all and only a function of God's choice I want to make an important clarification here. Even though God determines who will receive his mercy and who will receive his judgment, it can never be said that those who receive condemnation do not deserve it, right? Even us who have been made the objects of God's grace and mercy deserve only condemnation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that doesn't mean he took a righteous man and made him unrighteous. It meant that God took a man who stood condemned along with all other men, and he hardened that man's heart in order to manifest his own power. God will never condemn an innocent man. As Elihu said to Job in Job 37.23, God will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Another point that I think should be made here is that God will never turn down anyone who cries out to him for mercy. However you may struggle with what the Bible says about God's sovereignty over the destiny of men, the fact is God's word clearly declares that he is eager to show mercy to men. I'm going to quote my brother Bob Deffenbaugh from the message that he did on this Very same passage. He said, one of the key words in our passage is the word mercy. In tracking the use of this word in the New Testament, I learned something very significant. No one ever called upon our Lord for mercy and was turned away. No one ever came to our Lord and asked for mercy and received a response like, well, you're not one of the elect, I'm sorry, you'll have to go away. Every individual who asked Jesus for mercy in the Gospels received it. Those who spurned his grace are the ones who were condemned. End of quote. In verse 19, Paul goes to the question which I believe he knew his readers would ask in light of what he just said about God's dealings with Pharaoh. He said, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, personally, I don't think that that's an exceptional question that only the most skeptical or rebellious of people would raise. I think the you Paul is talking to is everyone who's reading these words. I've heard this same essential question from believers who are simply trying to understand all of this as well as they can. The question is, If God determines to show mercy to some and to harden others, then how can he find fault with the one whose heart is hardened toward him? If his will overrides the will of men, how can he hold men accountable? In verse 20, Paul begins his reply with the words, On the contrary, (laughs) And so again, we say, great, Paul's about to explain to us how God's concept of justice complies with ours. But that is not what Paul does. We want Paul to say, oh, no, you just misunderstood me. God would never hold a man accountable for his choices if God determined those choices. God only holds us accountable for the choices we make from our own free will. You know what? If that's what Paul wanted to say, this was the perfect opportunity for him to say it. Instead, he says the opposite. You can look for some element of man's free will in these verses for the rest of your life and you will not find it because it is not there. Paul says, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And if you tie that back to what he just said about Pharaoh, I think the point is again very clear. See, Pharaoh didn't get to say to God, how can you judge me for a hard heart when you're the one who hardened it? You could have made me different than you did. So it's unjust for you to judge me. Paul doesn't even begin to entertain that kind of response. He says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Isn't that what Job, what God said to Job? Who are you? He said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The problem is, Job had no more understanding than you and I do. At that point, Paul moves further into the analogy that he introduced in verse 20. The analogy of the potter who creates different kinds of vessels out of clay. And there are several passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that use this same analogy of the potter and the clay. And at the heart of all of them is the assertion that God does with men and nations as he wishes because he's the one who created them. The point is that the one who creates a vessel has the prerogative to determine what he does with the vessel. As Paul expands on this analogy in the next few verses in Romans 9, he again pulls no punches. He does not in the slightest way water down anything that he's already said. Instead, he makes it even more forceful. Verse 21, he says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common, dishonorable use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I believe both of the outcomes he talks about here are eternal outcomes, not temporary ones, as some would say. The phrase in verse 23, prepared beforehand for glory, taken in this context, the context of Romans 8 and 9, can only mean prepared for heaven. Because if you go back to Romans chapter 8, every time Paul talked about the glory to which we are looking forward, he was speaking of our entry into our inheritance as fellow heirs with Christ. He was talking about the day that we get to stand in the presence of God without sin. And so, when he uses the contrasting phrase in verse 22, prepared for destruction... He's talking about the coming everlasting judgment upon those who are not the children of God. Now, there are many godly scholars of the Bible who do not see God as acting as an intentional active agent when it comes to consigning people to hell. They think that God's role in in a man going to hell is, is sort of a passive role. And they point out, in this passage, that there's a difference in the Greek construction, verse 23, compared with verse 22. In verse 23, it says, vessels of mercy which he, God, prepared beforehand for glory. It's very clear who the active agent is there. It's God. But in verse 22, when it says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, the verb is passive. And so some conclude that the one doing the preparation is someone other than God. Some say that uh, it's the sinner himself, or perhaps the active agent is Satan. But guys, if you look back at the example that Paul just provided in verses 17 and 18, God said to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires god was the active agent in the hardening of pharaoh's heart and he was also the active agent in preparing some for destruction i know that's not easy to accept but i don't believe there's another way to to understand these verses If I did, I'd take it. (laughs) The analogy of the potter and the clay also strongly argues for the fact that God is the active agent in both outcomes, whether eternal glory or eternal destruction. In verse 21, Paul says, Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Look at this, guys. He is talking about the potter's intent for the vessel at the point of creation. Not some purpose the potter comes to after he's created the vessel and takes a good look at it and sees how it turned out. And Paul speaks of only one potter who creates one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, one destined for glory and another destined for destruction, and that one potter is God. I do not believe Paul could be any clearer. And I did not come to my conclusions about this passage because they were the ones I found most comfortable. Quite the opposite. I only believe what I see in this passage about God's sovereignty because I believe that this passage demands it of me. I was a, a pretty young man, uh, only four years old in the Lord. The first time I heard anyone preach or teach on Romans nine through eleven. It was in Southwest Houston after college, and the guy doing the teaching was a young pastor straight out of DTS, who had the, the audacity to do Romans as his first series. His name was Bill Perkins, and uh, he approached the text with great humility. In fact, he he told the body that he had been on the phone with some of his seminary professors in the weeks leading up to these three chapters because he wanted to make sure that he was being accurate with the text and careful with the text and that he was being fair to other positions because he, he recognized that this is a very important passage. But he said, in his final analysis, he was compelled to teach it as he saw it. And then he added, this isn't the way I wanted to see it. I sat through that series of messages and <laughs> I had the same reaction. This isn't the way I want to see it. I went home, I stewed on it. I read the passages again and I read them again and I prayed. And the more I looked at them, the clearer they became. In fact, I concluded that Paul was going out of his way to be clear. He asked the same questions and concerns that I had. And then he addressed them head on, without flinching, and he gave us answers that I didn't want to hear. <laughs> but he didn't backpedal in the least from the declaration that God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires without regard to the will or the performance of men. And the, but You know, uh, the amazing part of this wrestling match I had over this passage for me was that in the end, it brought me to appreciate the grace of God more than I ever had before. I became more certain than ever that my salvation was all of God and none of me. And brothers and sisters, that is good news indeed, if you know me. There are things about this passage that I do not understand. But I am absolutely convinced that God's sovereignty has no exceptions. And I find that exceedingly comforting. Where does this leave you if you are hearing all this and you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? How can you possibly know whether you are among those that God has chosen? Well, fortunately, God hasn't been at all unclear about the answer to that question. You must take God at his word by trusting in Jesus Christ as your one and only Savior. Then you will know that you are God's child and that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundations of the world. If you die without coming to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are not among God's elect. From man's perspective, it's all about faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The only way that you or I can know that we are the chosen of God... (laughs) is that we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. This powerful passage makes us privy to an amazing aspect of the working of God, but it does not change the fact that we must come to faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Instead, it establishes that fact. There are a couple of other things that I think must not go unsaid at this point. First, I'd be seriously remiss if I didn't point out that there are passages in the Bible that look at God's choosing from the other side, from the perspective of man's responsibility. There are passages that view man's response to God and man's role in coming to repentance and faith from a different angle than that which Paul is presenting here. And many of those passages were written by Paul. In fact, when we get to the end of chapter 9 and into pretty much all of chapter 10, Paul's going to return to the emphasis that he presented in chapters 3 and 4 on man's responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ. And he's going to connect all that God's been doing with both Israel and the Gentiles to that matter of faith at the same time that he ties it to the sovereign choosing of God. And he's not going to tell us how those two perfectly work together. There are also passages that seem to indicate that God doesn't force His will upon men in every case or in every sense. Now bear with me for a minute. 2 Peter 3, 9. Peter says, the Lord is not slow about His promise. I'm just going to turn that off for a minute. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Paul tells Timothy to make entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that they may, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And then he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now some in an effort to avoid any gaps in their theology argue that the all in those two passages means all of the elect. That may be right, but I am not sure it's immediately obvious from the passages themselves. Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. And you know what? In both instances of the word, I wanted to gather you under my wings and you were unwilling. The Greek word is the word for I will, to, to will. It looks to me like a battle of the wills in which God did not force his will on the people of Jerusalem. Okay? So there are some contexts in the Bible in which God does not seem to force man compliance with that which he says he desires, at least for a time. Now, I point all that out simply to make the point that there is more to the issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility than is presented in this one passage in Romans 9. But having said that, <laughs> I must add that I believe Romans 9 is one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture I do not believe it is unclear. And I believe that it tells us that God is absolutely sovereign in choosing those who will come to faith and be saved and in choosing those who won't. I believe that other passages that approach the same issues from the perspective of man's responsibility can never be seen as watering down what Paul says here. The sovereign election of God is not a poorly substantiated doctrine and it is not unclear in the passages that present it. It's presented emphatically, repeatedly, and clearly. And I believe God intends for us to humble ourselves to accept it just as he has presented it. But I believe even Paul tells us that we will not fully resolve the tension that this teaching creates in our minds. I'm going to jump ahead for a moment to chapter 11 of Romans. We'll see this again in a few weeks. But I just want to point out to you how Paul ends this whole discussion about God's sovereign dealings with the Israelites and with the Gentiles to bring about his plan of redemption. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. God has told us a great deal regarding his character, his works and his ways but there is very much about God that we cannot possibly comprehend. Even when we finally get to see him without having to look through the clouded glass of our sin, he will still be the creator and we will still be the creatures. When Job questioned the justness of God, God's response was all about the infinite gap between Job's understanding and God's understanding, between God's knowledge and Job's knowledge, between God's character And Job's character. And you know what? That was the, that was God's answer to Job. That was it. That was exactly the answer that Job needed, and it was the only answer that Job needed. Are you willing to be content with that answer? Beloved, if you demand of God that He make everything about His ways perfectly sensible to you before you will submit to Him, then you will never submit to Him and that will be very bad for you. Another point that I think must be made in connection with all that we've seen in this passage, a point that I believe goes to the essence of God's character as he himself proclaims it to be, is that God delights in mercy, not in judgment. Even though his holiness demands punishment for sin, God does not take pleasure in wrathful judgment. Let me give you a little bit of evidence for that. So you think I'm, I hope you'll realize I'm not making it up. I believe the most foundational declaration in all of scripture regarding God's essential character is that which he declared to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God caused his glory to pass in front of Moses, but he, he partially veiled it so Moses wouldn't die. And as the glory of God passed by in front of Moses, God made this declaration about Himself. The Lord, the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, twice after God made that initial declaration in Exodus, once in Numbers and once in Nahum, that declaration is quoted in both parts, the positive and the negative. But six times in the Old Testament, only the first part is quoted. And only once in the eight times that this passage is cited in the rest of the Bible after Exodus 34 is the focus on God's judgment. Every other time, the focus is on God's mercy. God is not anxious to judge. He declares of Himself that He's slow to anger, that He delights in compassion and grace and loving kindness and forgiveness. In Ezekiel 18... Verse 23, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? A little later in that same chapter, God says to Israel, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent. Repent. And live. God declares of himself that he has no pleasure in the death of a sinner. And yet death, both physical death and spiritual death, is still the consequence. It is still the curse that God imposed upon men because of our sin. Death is still the destiny of unrepentant sinners, even though God says he takes no pleasure in it. Isaiah 28 is one of many passages that speak of God's coming cataclysmic judgment upon mankind for their rebellion against him. And look at what God says about how he views his task of judgment. It says, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim, and he will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work, And then in verse 22 at the end, we find out that that work is the work of decisive destruction on all the earth. Those two verbs, or those two adjectives that are used to describe the task, both have the connotation of strange or foreign. God's strange work. Can it be that the holiness of God demands a fierce judgment against all unholiness and unrighteousness of men, even though that judgment does not give God pleasure? I believe God's own answer to that question is yes. Do we understand how an all-powerful and all-knowing God could be compelled to do something that does not give him pleasure? I don't know about you, but I can't figure that out. Does my lack of understanding of such things means that I'm free to pick and choose the things I'd like to believe about God and to pass on the things he declares about himself that are hard for me to understand? No, it does not. God demands of me and of you one response fundamentally to those things that he says about himself, whether we comprehend them or not. And that response is uncompromising humility. Yeah, the mm-hmm. The ramifications of God's sovereignty, even over the hearts of men, are huge. Um, Bob said this Wednesday morning in our discussion, I was quick to write it down, God's promises are only as certain as he is sovereign. Fortunately for us who belong to Christ, his promises are absolutely certain because he is absolutely sovereign. And if God is sovereign even over the hearts of men, what does that tell us about the priority of prayer? Well, if man's destiny is entirely in the hands of God, then God's the one we need to be talking to about men. Prayer is the bedrock of evangelism. Brother Colin McDougall used to say, don't worry about what you're going to say to somebody about Christ. Bring that person before God, and God will take care of what you need to say and when you need to say it. Prayer is the bedrock of evangelism because God is sovereign over the hearts of men. God's sovereignty makes us all the more dependent upon Him, and it makes His promises all the more certain. And His sovereignty makes Him absolutely worthy of our worship and our praise. Loving Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for all that you have declared in it, the things that we find easy to embrace and the things that we find hard to accept. I pray, Father, that you would humble us under your mighty hand because it is in that humility before you, Lord, that we find perfect peace It is in that humility that we are made useful to you. Father, may we never, never count you as unjust because you are the author of justice. You will do no violence to justice or abundant righteousness. I pray that if there are any here who have found the things we've looked at today to be uh just uh <laughs> impossible to accept, that you would impress upon their hearts that call to humility. I pray if there are any here who do not know you as as their master and savior that you would draw them to your son, as Jesus said, must happen in order for a man to come to him. And you would cause them to see their sin, their lostness, to see the impossibility that they will ever make themselves acceptable to you on their terms by their strength, and that they would trust in Jesus Christ alone. Father, um, go with us and use these powerful truths for your perfect purposes in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.